Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. He lies sleeping, slumbering somewhere until ultimate need when he'll return to save the British people. In this podcast, we're climbing the battlements of a majestic castle, swirling with mist and myth, legends and history. As the Romans retreated, new powers emerged, vying for control of these isles. A time of glittering kingdoms and ritualistic cruelty, invasions, feasting and great battles. Woven into this time, In the mists of history and literature are stories of a legendary king. A fabled hero who resonates with us still in the 21st century. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. In last week's podcast, you took us to the ethereally beautiful island of Iona, a place with the power to soothe the soul. Where's the next stop on our journey? Well, I love a castle. I do love a castle. I live in Stirling. We have a fantastic castle here. But, uh, for, this, for this particular episode, I'm taking you to another imposing castle. This one's on a beautiful coastline. And there we meet a man or the shadow of a man who's said to be sleeping, ready to return when these isles need him again. King Arthur. We're in Northumberland, so up on that northeast shoulder of England that sticks out into the North Sea, and we're specifically at Bambra Castle, which is even a nice word to say. Bambra Castle has a ring to it. It's on the coast. It's a castle that sits uh, it sits up high on a on a on basalt rock, uh, overlooking the sea, and from it uh, you can see just five miles away when the conditions are right, which is a lot of the time, Lindisfarne, which is the other Holy Isle. Just we just talked about Iona, the Holy Island on the west of Scotland. Well, Lindisfarne's on on the on the other side of the country. They're like bookends. 
either side. So you can see the, the enigmatic shape of Lindisfarne from the battlements of Bambra Castle. And not to put too fine a point on it, it my my love of, of Bambra Castle has a great deal to do with Arthur, King Arthur. If you sort of buy into folklore, mythology, legend and tradition in our part of the world, in these British Isles, then you trip over Arthur all over the place. He's just everywhere. You know, Tintagel down in the southwest obviously is, is practically Camelot for a lot of people. But there are innumerable locations around England, Scotland and Wales where you just trip over him. He's, he's everywhere. Uh, and the child in me, uh, the ch- and it's the child in me that really started loving history and archaeology, and that child in me has never grown up. <laughs> and so I'm... And, and so there's... Although this, although the sensible part of me knows that um, there's practically no reliable historical proof that Arthur even existed, I just instinctively, I think, feel that he matters in the story of the British Isles uh, because he's part of how generations of British people, indigenous British people, felt that they understood their own character. You know, as recently as the Second World War, Winston Churchill was revered as this, um, uh, you know, cometh the hour, cometh the man. Uh, that in a time of need, the right person is just suddenly pushed to the front. And that was a continuation of, of a lot of the way in which Arthur was regarded. He was someone who had appeared as though out of the mist at a time of need. And furthermore, according to the legend, he's now, although, he's, although he died, the belief, the, the legendary belief is that he's, he lies sleeping under a hill, surrounded by all his men, uh, and that when the when the country needs him again, he will sally forth. And that is that's woven light lettering through Blackpool Rock or or fat through good meat. It's right through a version of the British population's sense of itself. But there's no getting away from the fact that it's very hard to prove beyond mentions in literature centuries after his time. It's very hard to prove that he was ever real. Uh, but despite all of that, I, I think he's been remembered, or the character of Arthur has been remembered in such a way that there must have been a man who was the, like the, the grain of sand in an oyster around which the pearl grew. You know, a, a, a pearl doesn't grow unless there's something at the, at the heart of it. You can't see it anymore. You know, the grain of sand or the, or the tiny little bit of shell inside the pearl is, is in, is, can't be seen. But you know, because the pearl exists, that there must be something that started it. And so for the same reason, I think, I think that there was a, a person. There's good reason, there's good logical reason for thinking that he was a, a survivor, for want of a better word, of at the end of, at the demise of Roman Britain. You know, in the 400s, in the 5th century, Rome started losing interest in Britannia because it had bigger troubles elsewhere. But that's not to suggest that, you know, in any sort of Dunkirk fashion, all the Romans got aboard boats and left. Many people, Romano-British people, would have stayed behind. It was a time when the Roman Empire started to abandon Britannia. It created a power vacuum. People for whom for centuries... Certainty had lain in the in Roman rule. When that was eroded and then gone, other things started to get pulled into the empty space. 
because just as Britannia had been valuable to the Romans, it was a valuable place. People wanted it, and and people of ambition wanted to control it. And so, even as the as Roman rule was still there, but fragile, so even before it was gone, others were coming in. Amongst them, Anglo Saxons, uh, because as as uh, law and order, if you like, or control started to slip away from people's hands. Some some groups imported mercenaries, Angles and Saxons, as soldiers to fight for them, to defend them. So this was happening from the 400s to the 500s and, and then onwards. Is that because Roman Britain was organised around smaller, separate kingdoms? It begins. It, this is what this is what happens after after the Romans go gradually. And over the, in the centuries to come, what forms are seven kingdoms in England called the Heptarchy. Hept is seven. Mercia, Northumberland, Wessex. These started to form up, and in part, it was it was fueled by the coming of of Angles and Saxons. And to begin with, they were employees of of, of indigenous strongmen. But once there were enough of them, those Angles and Saxons understandably began to think, you know, we could just we could just take over. If not the whole place, well, we could grab a bit of it for ourselves. And that's what started to happen. So having been brought in, first of all, to be a sort of, you know, a mercenary force, they took the law into their own hands, if you like. So there's a chaotic period of men, of of people of will vying for power, trying to grab whatever they can. And it's perfectly reasonable to think that amongst those who thought they had a chance were Roman soldiers or or, or Romano-Brits who had been trained in the Roman way. And... A, a class of of, uh, of fighting man in that group in the Roman army were the equites, which are the mount, mounted men, knights. They fought on horseback and they had lances, long spears. It's instantly recognisable to us when we think about the classic uh, folklore, legendary image of Arthur, which is the knights of the Round Table, and Arthur being the best knight of all. So what that what you might have there in the Arthur legend is a folk memory of men who fought in the Roman way on horseback with lances. And they, they, gradually, over a period of telling and retelling, they become, you know, the, the classic romantic knights of the round table. So for want of anything in the way or much in the way of real historical proof, there are good reasons for thinking that Arthur was there and that that's, that's the sort of man that he was, a, a leftover from the Romano-British way of running the country. tend to picture Arthur and his knights as being very organised and well-drilled, like the Romans, don't you? Very much so, and it has to be said, though, that the the image that most people carry of uh, of Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table and Camelot and all of that, it, it, it was really set in stone in the, in the 15th century by an English writer called Thomas Mallory. Uh, he was a character in his own right. He had taken part in... He was a Lancastrian. He was on the Lancastrian side during the Wars of the Roses. And the other side were the Yorkists. And Thomas Mallory had been part of a, an attempted revolt against the Yorkist king, Edward IV. But it, it failed. That, that Lancastrian attempt failed. And Thomas Mallory was one of many people who were taken prisoner as a result. And while he was locked up in Newgate Jail, he wrote Le Mort d'Arthur, the death of Arthur, Arthur's death. And in that, 
he crystallised most effectively the elements that, that, that people think about when they think about Arthur. And according to Mallory's telling, the favourite knight was Sir Lancelot. Everyone's heard of Sir Lancelot, Monty Python and the Holy Grail and all of that. Everyone knows about Lancelot. He was the favourite. But, of course, he um, had a, an affair with Queen Guinevere, Arthur's wife and queen. Lancelot's uh, fortress, his home base, his capital, was a fortress that he called Joyous Guard, like a, like a happy fortress. He had previously called it Dolorous Guard, a sad and lonely, miserable place. But then he was visited by Arthur and Guinevere, and because she shone her radiant loveliness on the place, he renamed his castle Joyous Guard. And then, then, of course, he has his affair with Guinevere, and when their affair is discovered, they make a run for it. Lancelot takes Guinevere and they, they, they flee and they get to Joyous Guard. Now, Thomas Mallory had it that Joyous Guard is what we know as Bamborough Castle. Okay, so he it was who fixed Bamborough as Lancelot's fortress. And from that time on, Bamborough Castle has been part of the Arthur landscape part of the landscape of the of the Arthurian legend. And it, it, it absolutely fits the bill. The castle that's there now is Norman, okay? So it's built after the Norman conquest in 1066 and all that. So obviously the, the present castle, the enigmatic romantic place that it is now, is much later than the time of, of the real Arthur. But, but that location has a long history an archaeological history of occupation by human beings. It was, a, it was certainly an important place. Now, we've already touched on the fact that the, you know, the, Anglos, the Angles and Saxons started coming in and then were there in, in sufficient numbers that they were able to start taking control. And what the Anglo-Saxons established in Northumberland was a kingdom called Bernicia. In the 5th in the century, they had Bernicia, then or thenabouts. And there's every reason to think that the site that now is occupied by Bambra Castle would have been a strategic position, a capital of, of Bernicia. There's evidence, archaeological evidence, of human occupation on that site going back 2,000 years and more, which would mean that, first of all, before the Anglo-Saxons, it was an important site for some sort of Celtic, British population. And then, and then eventually, you know, the, the Anglo-Saxons acquired it and made it the capital of their kingdom. So what makes Bambra even more wonderful than it, just its associations with Arthur is the fact that the true history of Bambra is every bit as romantic. And it involves names and characters and adventures that rival anything that come from Arthur or from the Game of Thrones or from the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> you know, it's, it's every bit as, as evocative and soul-stirring an epic. Now, in around 600 AD, there was a battle between Britons, Celtic Britons, and some of those Anglo-Saxons from Bernicia. There was a tribe... Uh, who were called the Gododin, and their capital was Edinburgh, although they called it Dunedin. And historians 
strongly suspect, for obvious reasons, that Dunedin is Edinburgh. So they were the Gododin, a British tribe. They had been known to the Romans for a long, long period through, through the Roman occupation as the Votadini. They were what was called a client tribe of the Romans, which is to say they were, even before the Roman conquest, they were probably tolerant of and interested in working with Rome. And then during the time of the Roman occupation, they were, you know, they were quite happy to cooperate with that Roman occupation. And the, the Gododin had a territory that spread from, you know, around Edinburgh in, in, in the east of Scotland, all the way down to the River Weir in the north of England. So it bumped up against the territory of, or the kingdom of Bernicia. And in around 600, the king of the Gododin was a character called Minithog Moinvaur. And we know this because a poem was written to commemorate the battle. It's called Egododin. And what we know from Egododin, which was written sometime after 600, is that this king, Minithog Moinvaur, he was, he was angry and upset about the build-up of Anglo-Saxon forces on his borders and suspected for good reasons that they would eventually, if he didn't do anything about it, they would push further north and, and take him over. And he would lose everything. So he put out the call to gather to him all the great warriors of Celtic Britain. And so they came. They came from all over Strathclyde, uh, Pictland, Cumbria, uh, even North Wales. The warriors came and they gathered. They gathered at Dunedin. And there, according to the poem, Igorodden, Minodog Moinvaur feasted them and gave them gifts for a whole year. And then when he judged that the time was right, they sallied forth and they went down to a place that in the poem is remembered as Catraith, which is probably, possibly Catterick in North Yorkshire. And there they engaged in this massive battle with, with the Anglo-Saxons of Bernicia. And it was a catastrophic disaster for those Celtic Britons. They were wiped out. According to the poem, they get wiped out to the last man. Or there's one man left behind, in fact, to tell the tale of woe. Men went to Catraith at dawn. All their fears had been put to flight. Three hundred clashed with ten thousands. They stained their spears ruddy with blood. Now, that's a, that would be a suicide mission. Why would you send three hundred, however hard, men against tens of thousands. It just wouldn't have happened. So what the poet of Igododden probably is overlooking and not bothering to write about are the thousands and thousands of common foot soldiers that were also there. But given the sort of morality of the time, because they were rank and file, they didn't get a mention. And Igododden just deals with like the officer class and above. And the you know the privates and the constables and the sergeants, they just get the, you know, they don't get they don't get written about at all. But it's a Igododin is a is a justifiably famous poem because it describes these heroes. So, in addition to anything associated with Arthur, Bamborough Castle is a fantastic place to go to think about that event, because the Anglo-Saxons that fought at Catraith and destroyed the Gododin army of Minithog Moinvaur were probably based at Bamborough Castle. Okay, so it's already fantastic. If the poem was written around 600, and it's hard to be sure, but it may have been written just not long after the battle, then it has enshrined, fossilised within it, trapped like a bug in amber, the first mention of Arthur. 
Okay, so they overlap. So the truth of, of Anglo-Saxon Celtic British history, you know, wonderfully overlaps with the legend of Arthur because his name is mentioned specifically in relation to a Celtic British hero called Gwarvur. And Gwarvur, in, in describing what happens to Gwarvur, uh, the poet says, uh, he was no Arthur, but his strength was a refuge. So during the fighting, he was somebody who was so charismatic and powerful that other men were drawn to him, to be near him as the fighting intensified. He was no Arthur, but his strength was a refuge. So it means that the poet of Igododon knew that his audience had heard of Arthur. And they hadn't just heard of him, they knew that he was some kind of standard against which other brave men might want to measure their own courage. You know, he was it. He was the Muhammad Ali. You know, if you're going to be the heavyweight champion of the world, you need to be as good or greater than Arthur. And it's not possible. There is only one Arthur. But nonetheless, so it, it, it suggests that, that that poet knew that he was... The audience that were going to read his poem, Ego Dodden, would know what he meant when he said he was no Arthur, but his strength was a refuge. So you start to get this very interesting coming together of fact and possible fiction, which then makes you think, well, Arthur might be real then. Yeah, it's a strong reference, isn't it? it, it it's a strong it's a strong reference. And then the, the wonder, the fascination of the, of the story around Bamburgh Castle just goes on and on. A genuine king based at, at Bamburgh was, was Oswald. He was king in the 7th century. He may indeed have had something to do with, with the battle at Catriath, at Catrick. He may indeed have been the Anglo-Saxon leader at the time of, of the violence that was being described in Igododon. But he's real. He's a real person. And it was Oswald who was a Christian. He, was a, he had been converted to Christianity. Okay, now they, they weren't all. Others, others of the Anglo-Saxon kings were, st were still pagan. And so that was one of the many reasons why those Anglo-Saxon kingdoms fought amongst themselves. But King Oswald, out of Northumberland, out of Bernicia, possibly out of Bamburgh Castle, it was he who brought St. Aidan from Iona to, to, to establish the holy island of Lindisfarne. That happened under King Oswald's reign. So you've got this, the whole thing starts to take on the texture of a, of a, of a cloud, like a sea mist, within which lots of figures are moving ghostly and, quite, and hard to see. And some of them are real, and some of them are figments of people's imagination. And, and some of them are probably like Arthur, or a bit of a combination of the two. You know, that there's some kernel of truth about Arthur, but it's been, you know, desperately, hopelessly embellished by centuries of, of telling and, and retelling about, you know, what's, what's going on. This is real history about real people, but the characters, the battles and the kingdoms, they all sound so fictional. It's almost Tolkien, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, Oswald's a name, I suppose, that people think about, although nobody calls their child Oswald anymore. Well, probably very few. Uh, but he, he's also inhabiting a world that Anglo-Saxon world of strangeness, strangeness to our ears. He dies, in, he dies in battle in 642 AD, and it's in battle with the king of Mercia. Now, Mercia was another of the seven Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. It's, it's over, to, you know, well, over Wales Way, 
over in the over in that part of, of England rubbing up against you know Wales Mercia. So King Penda goes to war with King Oswald, and Oswald dies in 642 AD. Penda was pagan, and when he killed uh, Oswald, he got hold of his body and he, he cut it into bits and he hung the bits up on spikes in what was understood at, even at the time to be a, a mocking of the crucifixion of, of Jesus and the two thieves on, at Calgary. So he, he did it as a deliberate mocking, mocking his enemy's Christianity. You know, so when you, th- you, know, when you think about the Game of Thrones and the cruelty and the violence... These these sorts of events, these horrific cruelties, you know, you know, happened in real time, and it, it all it all keeps swirling. You know, the 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 mystery, all of which you can consider when you're standing, if you get the chance to stand on the battlements at, at Bambra, because there you've got the, the Anglo-Saxons are in control for a long time. They're the dominant presence, the heptarchy, the Seven Kingdoms. They fight amongst themselves, but they've got England under their under their heel, and then others come. Other figures enter, you know, like in Game of Thrones, you know, families, different people come in from elsewhere. And then by the, by the end of the 8th century, it's Vikings that start coming in. And of course, the very first bloody fingerprints of the Vikings that we know about are at Lindisfarne. There's an attack in, on Lindisfarne in the last decade of the 8th century by, by Vikings out of Norway. And they come down and they, they kill most of the monks. Those they don't kill, they take away to, to have or sell as slaves. They take away the gold and, and anything else of value that they can find in, in the monastery. And, and so from that time, from the end of the 8th century, there's now a, a, a war going on between those Anglo-Saxons and Vikings who are coming in ever-increasing numbers. Having, having started to arrive at the end of the 8th century, they never stop. At first, it's just kind of guerrilla tactics. They just come in on their long ships, they strike, often at religious places, monasteries and churches. But they come to those places because they've learned by observation that every Sunday, everybody gathers there, the monks and the local people. And they also know that in each monastery or church, there tends to be like gold cups and, you know, and books beautifully bound with, with gold and precious stones. So the Vikings just quite sensibly go right. We'll just wait for a Sunday. We'll swoop in. We'll get all the we'll get all the good stuff, and all the folk will be there. And we can take them as slaves. We don't even have to go and round them up. They'll all be together in the one in the one room. So the the, the Vikings were being very you know just very pragmatic about how to go about you know maximising their effort to get across the North Sea, make sure that they could go home wealthy, which is what they did. So they they operate like that for decades. But then in eight six five. AD, what arrives, what the, what, the, what the monks and priests start writing about in, in horror is the arrival of what they call the Mikkel Heathen Hare, the Mikkel Heathen Hira, which is the great heathen army. So in 865, rather than just coming in a, as a small strike, as a small contained group, they come in their thousands with the intention of invading and staying and taking Anglo-Saxon England they're led in the beginning by somebody called Ivar the Boneless. And the first Anglo-Saxon kingdom on their shopping list is Northumberland. Okay, Now, by that time, uh, Northumberland is being protected by a king called Isla. A-E-L-L-A. King Isla. And he has, you know, he has, he's defiant 
in the face of the Vikings, but he is, he is killed in battle by the Vikings. He may well have had something to do with, by that time, Ivar the Boneless was dead, and King Isla of Northumberland may have been responsible for the death of Ivar the Boneless in a battle elsewhere. But in any event, the Vikings, when they get hold of Isla, they treat him with particular Game of Thrones cruelty. And that legend has it that he, that he was given the death of the Blood Eagle, which was a legendary Viking execution. And it meant that a, a man's ribcage was split down his breastbone and then the ribs were levered apart until they were spread out like the wings of a bird. It's all a fascination for anyone who's interested in history. You, you, to, go to, to go to Bambra is an opportunity for many things. You can think about how long that place mattered. Archaeologists have shown that people were using it for thousands of years. Uh, archaeologists famously found a little gold, uh, like a brooch, you might say, or a piece of gold jewellery, a little sinuous creature, like a serpent, which is called the Bambra Beast. So obviously, obviously that place, Bambra, whatever they called it, was a centre for uh, people with access to wealth because their craftsmen were working in gold. So there's that. Then there's the undoubted reality that it's associated with Arthur. You know, the greatest British legend of them all, you might say. It's associated with Arthurian legend for some good reason because of that poem, Ego Dodden, that references Arthur as though he were a real person. So you can go and stand on the battlements at, at Bambra and you can think about Arthur. And from the battlements you can see Lindisfarne, which is another another place. We'll get to that in time. That's another of the places that are part of my love letter to the British Isles. But you can see Lindisfarne. And Lindisfarne was established by St Aidan. And he was brought to Lindisfarne by Oswald, who was a king of Bernicia, probably with a fortress at Bambra Castle. And then you've got the fact that it features in the story of the Viking invasion because Northumberland, that same place, that same corner of England, was the first place that the Vikings got their, got their claws into, if you like. And having got their claws into England at that point, they never let it go. And the Vikings are still among us. And we'll get to the Vikings. And even today, uh, you know, the castle is still, it's still inhabited. Since the end of the 19th century, it's been uh, home to the Armstrong family. And so it's still, it's still alive, if you like. You know, it's not some ruin. It's still, it's still got lifeblood in it. It's still got a beating heart. You know, even after all these centuries, since the time of the Celtic Britons, since the time of Arthur, if he really lived, since the time of the Vikings, there's this long, unbroken continuity that you can go and think about, the great depth of British history. And Bambra Castle in Northumberland is one of those places that you can go to and let all of that swirl around you like a sea mist or wash over you like a great wave. Bambra is one of the places that it feels right to think such thoughts. Does the landscape help illuminate the history for you? I mean, just like these tales, it is a beautiful, dramatic and wild coast, isn't it? It is. Northumberland continues to be a place of empty landscapes. You know, it's it's much more sparsely populated. And it's it's physically beautiful. You know, you could make a case for saying that there is no more beautiful place 
in the British Isles than the Northumberland coast there at Bamburgh. I'm not saying it is. I'm saying you could make a good, strong case. You know, when you're on when you're at Bamburgh and the and the weather conditions are just right, and you look out and you see the ghostly island of Lindisfarne, kind of floating, you know, like a great ship on a mirror, out there, just just out of reach. It, it looks, you know, when it comes to the legend of Arthur, if you're going to stand on on the battlements at Bamburgh Castle and think about Arthur, and the idea that he lies sleeping slumbering somewhere until ultimate need when he'll return to save the British people. When you look across at that ghostly image of of, uh, of Lindisfarne and there you've got an Avalon silvery, ghostly in the mist. So you can think to yourself, maybe Arthur lived here or hereabouts and maybe his maybe he's waiting in such a place as Lindisfarne, ready to come back. It's all, if you're, I have always, I make no apology for, and I've always been aware of the fact that I've, I've never really grown up about history. I read fact, and I try to make sense of what I believe to be historically proven. But I allow 50% of my thinking to, to drift into things imaginary. You know, tell me I'm wrong if you like, and that's fair enough. But I I love these places in part because they inspire imagination and dreams and legend and, and folklore. All facts are true, but not all truth is fact. The Arthurian legend isn't fact, but it has within it, it carries with it, elements that help people to understand who they might be. Arthur is is an aspirational character. Real or imagined, he was was said to be upright and honourable, brave, chivalrous. And and those are attributes that it's worth aspiring to. And, And stories last sometimes because they're factually true but also some stories last because they have within them something that is useful, whether it's true or not. And the Arthur legend gives us admirable characters to aspire to be. And that's why some of those stories last. And they hang in the air like spider's web. And you watch a spider's web drift on the wind on a a calm day and it'll catch, it'll catch on a rusty nail or or a fence post. Well, the Arthurian legend, the web of it, some of it has caught on the battlements of Bamburgh Castle. It's just there. And if you go to Bamburgh, you can dream of Arthur. A place that doesn't know if it belongs to the mainland or to the sea. A tidal island bathed in history. Walking across the long causeway that appears twice a day, just as our ancient ancestors did, maybe thousands of years before us. A holy island on the east coast that was rich and famous, but that bears the first bloody fingerprints of an invader who would change the British Isles forever. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. Check out my Instagram account, Neil Oliver Love Letter. And to ensure you get each new episode of the podcast as it goes live, don't forget to subscribe, write a review, and share with your friends. 
For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. The music's by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research was by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is taken care of by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.